Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're bringing you stories of the past meeting the present and the present meeting the future in a show we're calling Legacies. And we'll start with a man whose legacy began in the early to mid-1900s when he helped make history by coordinating the first known nonviolent sit-in of the civil rights movement. Samuel Wilbert Tucker was born in Alexandria, Virginia in 1913. And 75 years ago, on a hot August day, the African-American attorney got some young black men to head to Alexandria's only public library at the time, one designated whites only. On August 21st, 1939, his younger brother Otto and some of Otto's friends began to enter the library one at a time. Each one asked for a library card, and when they were refused, they went to the shelf, took a book, sat down, and read. Nancy Noyes Silcox just wrote a biography of Tucker. It's a young adult book called Samuel Wilbert Tucker, the story of a civil rights trailblazer and the 1939 Alexandria Library sit-in. I recently met up with her at the Alexandria Public Library on Queen Street, site of the 1939 sit-in. The white people who were in the library were astounded that this was happening. This had never happened before in a public library. So the police were called, the protesters were escorted out, and Tucker had already notified the newspapers, and so there were photographers and reporters outside and about 300 people watching to see what was going to happen. And what happened was the boys' immediate arrest and eventual charge of disorderly conduct. I'd actually like to have you read something from the book, Mm -hmm. speaking of that charge of disorderly conduct, here on page 45. Lawyer Tucker defended the young men in court. During the hearing, he asked, were they destroying property? No, was the answer. Were they properly attired, dressed for the library? Yes, was the answer. Were they quiet? Yes. Then they were disorderly only because they were black, asked Tucker. The arresting officer and the librarian admitted this was true. Judge Duncan delayed the case several times and finally made no ruling. The five protesters were not convicted. They never went to jail. The incident sparked Alexandria to build the separate, blacks-only Robert Robinson Library. It was about the size of a small row house. It had used furniture and old books, and the librarian was paid half that of the librarian at the Queen Street Library. And then what eventually happened with Alexandria's libraries? When were they integrated? The Robinson Library closed in 1959. So sometime after that, the Alexandria Library is quietly integrated. Tucker's interest in extending equal rights to all began at a young age. When he was just 14, he had a run-in with the law that would change his outlook forever. He and his older brother George and his younger brother Otto and a friend of theirs were coming back from D.C. on the streetcar. And a white woman got on the streetcar and went to the back of the streetcar where the boys were sitting, and they had actually moved the seat back to face the black section. It had been facing the white section. The back, so the, the, the seat sort of flipped. Slide back and slide yeah. back and forth. The boys wanted to sit facing each other. So a white woman asked them if they would move, and they refused because they believed they weren't doing anything wrong. Well, when they all got off in Alexandria, they were charged with disorderly conduct. And they were convicted and fined. But their father's friend, Tom Watson, who was an attorney, appealed the case. And there was a jury of five white men who found the boys not guilty of disorderly conduct. And from that incident, Tucker realized that in a court of law, Justice was sometimes possible. Let's talk about his foray then into the legal profession. Now he went to Howard University for undergrad, Mm -hmm. 
And he did become a lawyer, but I understand he never went to law school. No, that's true. He didn't go to law school. When he finished Howard, he could have gone on to Howard's Law School, but he said that he didn't want to go to school broke. This was 1933. That was Depression time. And instead, he read the law on his own. And so he read the law for six months after he finished Howard University. And in December, took the bar exam. Um, This is what's interesting, too. He couldn't go to a law school in Virginia, but he was allowed to take the bar exam. And the seating was segregated. But he took the exam in 1933 and passed. And he couldn't get his license. Because he wasn't 21 yet. He wasn't 21. (laughs) You would think it might be because of discrimination, but he wasn't 21. And you have to be 21 to be a lawyer in Virginia. So once he officially became a lawyer, I understand his first case was a murder trial. But he became especially well-known for focusing on school integration and voting rights. Can you tell us what achievements he brought about in desegregating public schools? Well, during his 50-year career, he argued hundreds of cases all over Virginia. And the case that he's most well-known for is his 1968 case, Green versus New Kent County which came 14 years after Brown versus the Board of Education. And we consider that that in 1954 was the landmark case for school desegregation, but it didn't really result in integrated schools or desegregated schools until Tucker's case in 1968. Uh, Many school boards had freedom of choice plans, Now, the reality of that was that the white students did not select to go to inferior black schools, and very few black students chose to go to white schools where they faced hostility and discrimination. So it wasn't until the Green versus the County School Board of New Kent County that there was a a good way of challenging these freedom of choice plans. New Kent County is uh, east of Richmond, and it's a rural county, It was an integrated community, yet there were two separate schools on either end of the county, one for white students and one for black students, and the kids were bused to go to their school. And it would have been very easy to decide that one school was for kindergarten through sixth grade and the other for seventh through twelfth grade, but that didn't happen until Tucker's Supreme Court case in which the Supreme Court decided that it was time for school boards to immediately desegregate. So you wrote this book for young people, and I want you to tell us, what do you hope these younger readers will take away from Tucker's story? In one interview, Tucker was asked just about the same question, what was the advice that he had for young people? And he said that we need to keep the progress in civil rights that we've made and keep fighting to make more and keep our story told. Being vigilant to see that we don't lose some of our civil rights that were so fiercely fought for is a, a lesson and a message that I think is important for young people today. Nancy Noyes Silcox is the author of a new biography on Samuel Wilbert Tucker. She was also the first librarian at Samuel W. Tucker Elementary School in Alexandria. You can find more information on her book on our website, metroconnection.org.
Our next story is also about a man born in Virginia, in the Shenandoah Valley, actually. And this man left quite a considerable legacy, both here and abroad, after serving as our nation's 28th president. In 1921, after Woodrow Wilson wrapped up his two presidential terms, he not only chose to stay in the district, but he's actually the only president who's buried here in Washington. On the 100th anniversary of the dawn of World War I, Lauren Ober looks at how the wartime president's influence can still be felt today. A quick history lesson. The year was 1914. Irving Berlin sparked a dance craze with his ragtime tunes. Henry Ford implemented the Model T assembly line. And the death of Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand at the hands of a Serbian assassin set off a series of events that plunged Europe into war. But it wasn't a conflict President Woodrow Wilson was interested in getting involved in. It was just another European squabble, he thought. This will be hashed out before the fall, and this is just France and Germany fighting again, and they're just pulling in some Eastern European, you know, it was that sort of a thing. It was the gravity of it was not really realized at first. That's Andrew Phillips, the curator of the Woodrow Wilson Presidential Library and Museum in Stanton, Virginia. And those sounds you're hearing, those are actual recordings from the trenches of the war's Western Front. It turns out that fighting in Europe wasn't just a minor kerfuffle. Hundreds of thousands of soldiers were dying in theaters of war across the continent. And German U-boats were sinking passenger ships like the Lusitania, which lost nearly 1,200 people. It was time to act. Wilson asked Congress to declare war. No recording exists of the address, but here's what he said. I advise that the Congress declare the recent course of the imperial German government to be in fact nothing less than war against the government and people of the United States. And with that, the U.S. was at war. A year and a half and 117,000 American lives later, the warring sides laid down their weapons. It's a pretty high rate of casualties, but it was decisive in ending the war. Robert Enholm is the executive director of the President Woodrow Wilson House here in Washington. There was nothing more important to him, to our nation, really to the world, than ending that war. Today, Woodrow Wilson isn't remembered in the same way that, say, Franklin Roosevelt or JFK are, but his legacy is no less apparent. To negotiate a peace in Europe, Wilson decamped to France for six months in 1918. There he outlined his famous 14 points. In putting forth his 14 points, Wilson was identifying principles upon which everyone ought to agree and upon which the war could come to a peaceful resolution without actually fighting everybody to the death. Today, the points are the cornerstones of American foreign policy. When we think of the legacy of President Wilson for today, there are several things that come to mind. And one of them is his view of a principled foreign policy. Until his time, most foreign policy was conducted on uh, an essentially selfish plateau. The idea was, well, what's good for us right now, that's what we'll do. In the last of those 14 points, Wilson called for a League of Nations. The League of Nations, the 14th point, was really the one that he thought was the most important. It would be the place where nations would come together and diplomatically hash out any problem that came about. But the Senate at the time didn't think the League of Nations was such a great idea. And as a result, the U.S. never joined. Without its main sponsor, the League was fairly toothless. When it dissolved in 1946, the United Nations took its place. And the U.N.'s lineage can be traced right back to Wilson. 
the U.N. isn't Wilson's only contribution to our modern world. You have the 28th president to thank for child labor laws, the Federal Reserve, the eight-hour workday, political science, Mother's Day, and the U.S. Virgin Islands, to name a few. But one of his most lasting contributions is the ideology that bears his name. Wilsonian ideology is a mixture of internationalism and the idea that democracy should be defended abroad as well as advocated abroad. That the world must be made safe for democracy is an idea that has governed U.S. foreign policy for generations. Politicians on both sides of the aisle have used this ideology to justify the U.S.'s involvement in many foreign conflicts, from Korea in the 1950s to Iraq and Afghanistan more recently. And while there's often disagreement about how and where to put Wilson's idea into practice, it's likely that the legacy of this often overlooked president will be an enduring one. I'm Lauren Ober. After the break... We won't starve if we lose all the bees. But if we want variety in our diet and we want that diet derived in America, we need a healthy pollinator force. The legacy of vanishing honeybees. Stay with us. It's coming up on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection, where today our theme is legacies. In just a bit, environment reporter Jonathan Wilson will look at the mysterious disappearance of a key species and what this vanishing might mean for the future. But first, the local legacy of violence in a place far, far away. For months, WAMU's Armando Truel has been reporting on the flow of children from countries like El Salvador and Honduras to the D.C. region. Armando wanted to dig deeper into the root causes of this mass migration. So last month, he traveled to El Salvador. And next week, WAMU will feature his reporting in a four-part series during Morning Edition. And Armando joins us now with a sneak peek of what he found on his travels. Welcome to Metro Connection, Armando. Gracias, Rebecca. I want to start by getting a little bit personal. Um, We've been hearing quite a bit in the past few months about the sky-high murder rate in some of these Central American countries. What did it feel like when you were on the ground in the towns you visited? I mean, what was going through your head in terms of of personal safety? Well, I've covered a lot of uh, conflict areas, and and this is not a conflict area. This is not as dangerous as, for example, Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan. But it is a dangerous country. The U.S. State Department has a travel warning to travelers there. And uh, it is something unremarkable to have 10 people die in one night in the country. It is, it is just that level of violence. When you go to a place like that, you basically consider two things. One, the kind of violence that you can do nothing about. Bad luck. Can't plan for that. Second type of violence that you can plan for are things that you can do to make yourself less vulnerable. So you don't dress in, in any clothing that attracts attention to yourself. You don't have a watch. 
You don't conduct interviews out in the open. You don't flash cameras. Uh, when you travel, you don't advertise where you're going. You change taxi drivers every day. You spend less than an hour in one location and never go back the next day. Things that will keep you a bit safer and and hopefully will make the trip uneventful, at least in terms of violence. That was the case. I also want to say that I felt very welcomed by all of the people from El Salvador that I met, wonderful people going through some very tough times. Armando, you interviewed gang members while you were in El Salvador. I'm curious, what did you learn about gang culture there that perhaps wouldn't be so clear to us, you know, thousands of miles away in Washington, D.C.? The most shocking thing to me, Rebecca, was the prevalence of gang activity in the country, the fact that gangs have taken over entire neighborhoods. They control roads. People have to pay tolls to go in. People have to pay taxes uh, if they live in the neighborhood. Sometimes they'll take over a home. This is a very disturbing image, but they have something there called casas locas, where a gang in a neighborhood they control will go to your home, kick you out, and then use the home to torture victims, kill them, and dismember them. Casas locas, crazy houses. And certainly very crazy things. Uh, So I had an opportunity to speak to Jose. Jose is a former gang member. He was involved in the gang life here in the Metro D.C. area, grew up here, was incarcerated here, and then deported back to El Salvador. And um, let's just listen to what he has to say. Gangs is like a virus. You just got to wait for one dude to get here, and it spreads. In this neighborhood, there's no gangs, and I'm the first gang dude. And if I call somebody in jail and I ask them for permission to start a new clique here, and they say, go ahead right away, start recruiting people, and I go around the neighborhood talking to dudes and kids who want to join the gang, you know, and I start teaching them about crimes, how to use a gun. And that gang presence, Rebecca, is what is driving a lot of these young people to leave. Now, as you were reporting, you also spoke with people who were displaced by the Civil War in El Salvador in the 1980s and 1990s. How much would you say the current violence in the country stems from that earlier conflict? Well, that is, uh, that is an excellent question. Imagine if you had a civil war in the United States that killed four and a half million people, that displaced 30 million people inside the United States, and another 30 million people had to leave the United States. That is the impact that the war had proportionally in El Salvador. And because the, uh, that country is so densely populated, you would have that war not happen throughout the continental United States, but you would have to cram 300 million Americans into the original 13 colonies. Then you get to understand what the impact in El Salvador was of a war that happened 30 years ago. I mean, I spoke to people who were child soldiers during that war. It's, 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 it's just incredible. Let's take a listen to Dr. Jose Romagosa. He created La Clinica del Pueblo here, but he was a victim of torture that led him to leave El Salvador, and um, he has some interesting insights into what the war meant for his country. The war hit our society like an earthquake. It demolished family structures because many people hunted by the government had to flee and leave their children behind. Our traditional family values disappeared. And so that earthquake that destroyed family structures in El Salvador is is still being felt today. 
Armando Trull is WAMU's morning reporter. You can hear his series from El Salvador next week during Morning Edition at 6.50 and 8.50 a.m. Armando, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Before we move to our next story, uh, here's a fun fact. Did you know that one in every three bites of food the average American consumes is either directly or indirectly pollinated by honeybees? It's true, but we have a big problem on our hands. In the past decades, bee colonies have been dying off at a 30% clip, often under mysterious circumstances. So scientists and members of the agricultural industry are scrambling to figure out what's going on with these winged workers. Some of the most promising work on honeybees happens right here in the Mid-Atlantic at the University of Maryland. Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson has more on the school's latest honeybee initiative. If you've read anything at all about honeybees recently, you probably come across the term colony collapse disorder, or CCD. It hit the mainstream lexicon a few years ago, but bee researchers started talking about it back in 2006. That's when some beekeepers were reporting 30 to 90 percent losses of their hives under strange circumstances. Hives abandoned by all the adult bees, leaving behind a live queen, immature bees, and often quite a bit of honey. So the first thing that's important to realize is that when we came up with the term colony collapse disorder, that was defining bees that were dying with a very specific set of symptoms. That's Dennis Van Engelsdorp, assistant professor of entomology at the University of Maryland. Van Engelsdorp was part of the original Colony Collapse Disorder Working Group, a team of bee experts formed in 2007 to study the crisis. He says in the past few years, he hasn't seen any hives with the telltale signs of CCD, and nationally, the number of honeybee hive losses has dropped back to around 20 percent, close to the historical average for recent decades. But in certain areas, Like the mid-Atlantic states, it was much higher. Some states, as much as 60% loss. And so there's still a problem out there. They're just dying from other causes. Since there's still quite a bit of mystery surrounding CCD and other possible causes of honeybee decline, gathering more data about what's happening to these hives is essential. On the roof of the university's plant sciences building, where Van Engelsdorp's team keeps its hives, project manager Karen Rennick explains one crucial measurement for beehives, weight. So right now we're feeding the the colonies to make sure that they put on enough weight. They need anywhere from 40 to 70 pounds in Maryland to make it through the winter because they will consume this honey to keep warm through the winter. Weight is just one of the data points that a new initiative called the Sentinel Hive would pick up. Dennis Van Engelsdorp says a sentinel hive would include a specially designed scale to measure hives for honey production and consumption. One would also include a state-of-the-art trap placed at the entrance of the hive once every two weeks to collect pollen from incoming bees. Scientists could then figure out which flowers were attracting bees, important data since food sources for bees are in shorter supply these days as well. The setups would also require beekeepers to send bees back to Van Engelsdorp's team for dissection to check for varroa mites. That's a parasite that can wipe out entire hives. The idea is that we can get this real-time information on the web, allowing a group of beekeepers that live around that hive 
to look at what's happening in that hive so they can make management decisions in their operation. Each Sentinel hive would cost about $1,000, and the university's entomology department has turned to online crowdfunding in hopes of getting lots of small donors to help them reach their goal of $8,000 by October 23rd. That would be enough to pay for a pilot program of Sentinel hives placed with amateur beekeepers around Maryland for one year. The ultimate goal is dozens or even hundreds of sentinel hives around the region and the country. Tony Burnham, the president of both the D.C. Beekeepers Alliance and the Maryland Beekeepers Association, was one of the first to donate online. She says the Sentinel Hive Initiative is tailor-made for backyard beekeepers, since so many rely on little more than amateur anecdotes to make bee management decisions. To get this signal from the environment, this great hive weight, pollen count, mite count, information back. It tells us what we can do for our bees. It gives us good information, and we don't have to be PhDs to understand it. Burnham says she likes to fight against all the pessimism out there about honeybees. But she also says we need to realize that a good chunk of the food production in our country simply doesn't happen without them. And that's something we can no longer afford to take for granted. Days gone by, if you had an apple orchard that was near the woods, you'd sort of do the math and figure, well, you should need 10 beehives to pollinate my orchard. But, you know, there's woods right there. There are bees in those woods. I'm only going to hire six. Nobody does that discount anymore. No one looks at those woods and says, yeah, there are honeybees out there, because there aren't. There aren't. I'm Jonathan Wilson. more about the Sentinel Hive Project, as well as Maryland's 400 species of native bees, we have photos and links on our website, metroconnection.org. theatrical legacy that stretches back a quarter century. That was the show that most people think was Signature's first show, because it was the one that put us on the map, and suddenly we were the little engine that could. That and more is just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're talking legacies, like the legacy of an early civil rights leader in Virginia, the legacy of a U.S. president with a local pedigree, and as we'll hear in just a bit, the centuries-old legacy of a singing, clapping, and swaying band. But we're going to kick off this part of the show with a legacy that is nothing short of dramatic. Arlington, Virginia, is home to a theater company celebrating its 25th anniversary season. It's nabbed one Tony Award, 82 Helen Hayes Awards, and countless rave reviews. It's resided in three different spaces, from a cramped library at Gunston Middle School, to a defunct auto bumper plating shop, to its current digs in the heart of Sherlington Village. The company dates back to 1990, but we'll begin our story in the fall of 1991. Came with tail of sweetie talk. His skin was clear and his eye was off. He shaved the faces of gentlemen who never thereafter were heard of again. 
He's drawn a path that few have trod. This sweet Todd. The demon barber of Green Street. This is a recording of the first show of Signature Theater's second season. Stephen Sondheim's bloody musical thriller, Sweeney Todd. That was the show that most people think was Signature's first show, because it was the one that put us on the map. It was also the first of Signature's 23 Sondheim productions. And as co-founders Donna Migliaccio and Eric Schaefer recall, the show's success was quite the surprise. When we said we were going to do it, people thought we were crazy because we were in this carpeted library and you're going to do a musical on carpet. Makes no sense. And then also we had 18 musicians in the orchestra and we had 18 in the cast. You know, and everyone got paid. Because we made a lot of money because we got an incredible review. We were worried about getting the review, you remember, because we opened on a holiday weekend. It was Labor Day weekend, yeah. Yeah, and suddenly the box office, which was basically my home phone, it just went berserk. So we were putting people anywhere we could, but we probably were in violation of every fire law there was. We were practically hanging people from the rafters. The more he lives, the more he lives. He never forgets, he never forgets. Perhaps today you gave a nod to Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Jesus. I recently sat down with Donna, a longtime actress, and Eric, the company's artistic director, in a rehearsal room at Signature. And I asked them, well, if Sweeney Todd was the season two opener, what was season one like? And what motivated them to even start their own theater company in the first place? We were both sitting on boards of community theaters, and I think we were both on play reading committees that we suggested shows to do in the seasons. And, you know, a lot of times they're like, we don't want to do that. That has a swear word in it, or, oh, the blue hairs won't like it. And so it was like kind of literally out of frustration one night after a board meeting. We were at a, the Calvert Grill in Arlandria, and we were sitting there drinking pitchers of beer like we usually did, and we were like, oh, we should start a theater. I think it was the next day Donna called me, and she was like, were you really serious about that? Remember that conversation we had? And Donna, what, what do you remember? Well, it originally did start as a joke. We were both sitting on the community theater boards. We were both frustrated with the fact that nobody would try anything new or cutting edge. And we would kid that we were going to start our own theater company. And I remember we were in a car, not a bar. (laughs) And we started chatting about actually maybe really doing this. And Eric called me the next day and said, were you serious about this? And I said, yes, but make me two promises if we do this. One is that we're not going to try to fund the theater on our own because neither of us were independently wealthy. And the other was that we would try to come in under Arlington County's wing. They were just starting to form their arts incubator program. Did you end up approaching the county? Was that one of the first steps you took? Yeah, we did. We went to the county, and it was, as Donna said, it was great because Gunston was just getting turned over from the school into that arts center, and they were like, we're going to give you one of those spaces. We'll give you 12 weeks in in the space. So, I mean, is that the birth of Signature Theater? Did you have the name? Did you have the mission? Did you have it all at that point? (laughs) We invited a bunch of our friends over, gave them dinner, and said, help us think of a name for our theater company. And we had names like Kaleidoscope Theater and Caliban Theater and Drama Forum. (laughs) And none of them were right. And the next day, Eric called, and he said, I don't think we have a name yet. And I said, I think you're correct. And a day or two later, you called me and said, I was reading Advertising Age or something like that, and you came across a Thornton Wilder quote about how the actors and directors put their signature 
on plays. Wasn't that it? It was an advertising, but because in art school, when I went to art school, and we, we, to get ideas, we always looked like at magazines and at ads, and there was an ad for a diamond, and it had the word signature and whatever it was. It uh-huh. could have been a Thornton Wilder thing, but the word signature like popped up. And then we started, yeah, we started producing. We did three shows our first year, and then four the second. What were those first three shows? It was Mill Fire, A Life in the Theater, and Dangerous Liaisons. How did you pick those as your very first three shows? Well, I think as Donna said, I mean, you know, we wanted to do stuff that was new and daring, and Millfire was a brand new play. And, I mean, the funny thing about that show, too, is, like, it was the first time there was full frontal nudity in Arlington County. And um, so that was interesting. We had a very respectable first season, but it wasn't burning down the barn, and it sure wasn't us, you know? That's what I felt like we learned from that first season. We had to be true to what we wanted to do. I think, too, the other thing was what, what was interesting is, you know, a lot of people always ask, well, you know, the Sondheim connection, they just think of, you know, Signature and Sondheim, and, you know, was that our mission from the beginning? And it, and it never was. It's like, you know, we did Sweeney Todd, and literally that was either going to make or break the company financially, and we were like, if, if this flops, we're out of business. It was that risky, but we were like, let's just jump. And then the next year we did Assassins, which was one of the first productions to do it out of New York right after it closed at Playwrights Horizons. And then it was interesting because the audience is the one who was like, well, what's the next Sondheim? Like it wasn't a sense that we were like, oh, next year. So they're actually the ones who really planted the seed in our own head to say, you know, well, what are you doing next? And then we did Company. That's what really started us doing a Sondheim every year. company company was a disaster i'll say it it was an artistic disaster i was like it was like one of the ugliest things to look at that's why we just did it at signature last year because i said i gotta redeem myself we got sort of lukewarm reviews except for arch campbell who loved it and pumped it on his show and he would talk about how good company was and we got butts in those seats we'd never had before learning was taking place in these first years? I don't think it ever stopped. Just as soon as you think you've got it sussed, somebody will throw you a curveball. And I think that's the thing that's the interesting thing about signatures because it isn't, there's not a formula to it. I, I never wanted signature to be called an institution because I think that just means like it's just this building or it's just this thing and it's not creative. And I just, I've always said, you know, I want signature just to feel like a kid all the time it needs to just be young and fresh and just like trying this or pushing this boundary or why not you know and so after 25 years I think the great thing is is we still do have that spirit because people still just never know what we're going to do Those were Signature Theatre co-founders Eric Schaefer and Donna Migliaccio. The next production of Signature's 25th anniversary season, Elmer Gantry, opens October 7th. We have all sorts of Signature-related goodies on our website, like a clip of Eric telling the story of how he found out Signature won the Tony Award and then had to keep it a secret. We also have a video of Eric and Donna reminiscing about the good old days. You can find it all on MetroConnection.org. We'll turn now to a legacy that stretches back to the days of slavery. 
The singing and praying bands of Maryland and Delaware have been a key part of church life in the African-American Methodist community for generations. These days, though, just one singing and praying band remains in our region. And yet, as Matthew Schwartz tells us, this rarely heard music is now reaching a much larger audience. It's not a choir. We do not have sopranos, tenors, altos, and bass. We just come together in unison and uh, just sing on one accord and uh, blend our voices together. That's Reverend Jerry Colbert, leader of the singing and praying bands of Maryland and Delaware. And he's talking about a musical tradition that, until recently, hasn't been shared with outsiders. It has its roots in African ring shouts, worshippers moving in a circle while singing and clapping and stomping their feet. For years, the practice remained a relative secret. This wasn't about performing for others. This was about praising God. So how, then, did we get here? Ladies and gentlemen, let me present to you the 2014 National Endowment for the Arts National Heritage Fellows. Last month, the singing and praying bands received the highest honor the federal government can give a folk group. It came with a $25,000 prize, an award ceremony, and a sold-out show at George Washington's Lisner Auditorium, streamed live around the world. It's safe to say the singing and praying bands of Maryland and Delaware are no longer a secret. Here's Reverend Colbert. It's a constant prayer of, uh, you know, let us reach the people and how will they respond. We don't know if they um, consider us as entertainers and uh, not a religious, spiritual organization. And so, you know, we always have these thoughts going through our mind outside of the box at a festival um, at the Kennedy Center. Let's make sure that we're reaching somebody in that audience, in that theater. You've got to know something about the Lord in order to really enjoy the singing and praying band. Sarah Irving is an energetic 79 going on 80. She lives in Cornersville, right outside Cambridge, Maryland, and she's been in this group for 60 years. We don't have tambourines and band um, instruments. Our music is our hands. We sing with our lips and clap with our hands, stomp with our feet. When the spirit get on us, we shout. It's just joy in singing and praying. Doris Moloch, who also lives near Cambridge, has been in the group for longer than she can remember. I pray, but I can't do too much singing. But when the spirit get in there, you know it. You know it, everybody knows it. Yeah, no better than that, singing and praying, praising God for keeping you from one day to another. And then he wakes you up, you see a brand new day. And God is good. For 81 years, I got something to praise and thank God for. You think it keeps you young? I don't know about that. (laughs) But I know I'm still here. And I can still praise him, and I can still get around. I'm kind of slow, but they watch over me and take care of me. You know, I done lost two children, two sons. If God wasn't on my side, I couldn't have made it. But 
I will go to him and as each day passes, it gets a little lighter. The burden gets a little lighter. But God is the oldest one doing because we can't do nothing without him. And I don't know about you. I don't know about them. But I know I got something to praise God for because God has been good to me. I tell you, I can't sing, but I can call on his name. And I, I get an answer sooner or later. Yeah. He'll come and see about The singing and praying bands are getting older. The members, as they might say, are coming home. I'm not certain whether this particular tradition will survive. That's Jonathan David, a folklorist who has studied the group for 30 years. He's in Philadelphia. We spoke on Skype. I do think that this kind of recognition they're receiving now will change the singing and praying band, but offer new opportunities so that perhaps um, young people now may look at them in a different light and be willing to join in and learn what, what the singing and praying bands have to say. But, you know, the African-American sacred music tradition is very rich, and I have pretty much, I'm pretty secure in thinking that that will continue. My whole focus point in this is uh, to keep tradition alive. If it take us to Los Angeles, keep tradition alive. You know, if it take us to London, England, keep tradition alive. You know, uh, we're not there to entertain, but we're there to minister to the people. You know, and I don't want them to ever lose that. But even if you're not a member, even if you're not a believer, Reverend Colbert thinks anyone can take something away from hearing this group sing. There is new life, and there is not a struggle always in life, and there's freedom in just singing. It it, it releases you. It becomes a part of you. And we just hope that um, we reach somebody and say, man, that was wonderful, that was powerful, you know. I, I would like to hear them again. I'm Matthew Schwartz. We have photos and video of the Singing and Praying Band on our website, metroconnection.org. It was legendary clothing designer Coco Chanel who once said, Fashion has two purposes, comfort and love. Beauty comes when fashion succeeds. Well, our final story today is all about how fashion and style affect women's lives and how they've done so through the years. Jackie Lydon has been looking at the meaning and history of clothing in a series called The Seams. Today, she brings us the story on women in clothes, a book of essays, conversations, testimonials, and pictures from hundreds of women. It can be hard to talk about clothes in an intelligent way. The fashion critic, Kennedy Fraser, once wrote in The New Yorker that the act of donning a garment can seem almost furtive or trivial, something beneath debate or intellectual content. The editors of Women in Clothes would agree that it's a challenge. Novelist Heidi Julevitz is one of them. You know, when you hear the word fashion, you just think fashion magazine. You think of a certain kind of much more uh, superficial way of talking about what you put on your body. She and her two collaborators decided to send out questionnaires to hundreds of women. We wanted to ask people questions that might in some ways be the province of a fashion magazine, but we wanted to really free people from that fashion language. 
Fashion magazine language can be both tired and patronizing. Must-have outfits, do's and don'ts, competitive notions like who wore it best. Together with Leanne Shapton and Sheila Hetty, the authors created a list of 50 far more intriguing clothing questions. What is your cultural background and how has that influenced how you dress? Do you think you have taste or style? Which one is more important? How does money fit into all this? Did your parents teach you things about clothing? care for your clothing, dressing, or style. Please describe your mind. Please describe your body. Please describe your emotions. And another thing they wanted to know was how many women were not interested in clothing. And among the thousand or so responses they got? Five percent. Five percent. It's so frustrating when people say, I'm not interested in clothing. You know, what they mean is I don't want to appear to care about clothes. That was certainly true for Sheila Hetty, one of the editors of Women in Clothes. She's the author of the novel, How Should a Person Be? She said she'd never given any thought to clothes. She was a writer, had an interior life. Clothes were external. But that changed a couple years ago. I woke up one day and I just thought, today's the day that I want to figure out how to dress. You know, I wanted to know what other women thought about as they got dressed, how they knew what to buy in a store, how they knew what they wanted to wear. Um... I want to sort of figure out what my taste was. The submissions in Women in Clothes are stories or fragments, a chorus of voices from around the world about clothing as intimacy, emotion, memory. One woman talks of emigrating as a child from Vietnam. Their first apartment came equipped with an industrial sewing machine, and the whole family labored together sewing clothes. Another is a week's diary of a woman's compulsive purchases. The famous appear here, Miranda July, Lena Dunham, Cindy Sherman, but the vast majority are not. One contributor is Gilda Haber of Silver Spring, Maryland. As an author and educator, she's written thousands of pages on clothing rules going back as far as ancient Greece and Rome. Nobody realizes that this is a law, that you have to be dressed to a certain extent. So we are forced to dress, actually. (laughs) Otherwise, we break the law if anybody should run naked down the street. Clothing restrictions were part and parcel of her childhood. As a Jewish girl growing up in East London during World War II, Haber fixated on clothing as it defined her. She was an only child, shipped off to a Christian orphanage by her mother. There, she had to wear red bloomers. She hated them, and it got worse. By the time I was 16, my mother had had me measured and put into a corset with whalebone and hooks and a tie-up at the side, and you could knock on me. Haber also describes how she was dressed the day an editor for Life magazine in London invited her to tea. She wanted to wear her first beautiful post-war white dress, which showed off her figure, but instead her mother forced her to wear her detested school uniform. Tea was a disaster. The young, handsome editor expected a glamorous teenager I was so angry with my mother that I risked a slap in the face. Right then, I decided to leave home and come to America, which I did. Mothers and daughters usually have a primal relationship over clothes. Milena Rose's mother helped her answer a survey about what clothes she likes. Milena's five, the book's youngest contributor. The dress has flowers and it has drawn lace and it has leaves on the leggings, and the dress has tiny flowers, 
and designs. But to wear shorts and t-shirts, that would make her a little bit sad. In women in clothes, the often elitist language of fashion is stripped away, leaving behind a conversation, sometimes funny, sometimes painful. Editor Leanne Shapton wrote the memoir *Swimming Studies*, for which Shapton won the 2012 National Book Critics Circle Award. She says that some of the best entries here show plain honesty, like this one. She reads from Anne Ireland. Often, I'll spot a woman crossing the road who is wearing just the narrow gray-black pants I want, or sneakers that are just one color with no ugly stripes. Maybe I could get away with that Indian dress. Those Jesus sandals are just the ticket. I bet they're comfortable too. Then I crave it—a sort of low-level fever that won't lift until I've located the desired item and seen whether it works for me too. Clothing is triumph. Clothing is connection. And as this book attests, it's about the life of the mind and heart. Sheila Hetty offers this memory from a contributor named Amy Turner. My favorite piece of jewelry is a gold heart that I got in upstate New York. I never have distinct or clear feelings, but when I saw it and put it on. I knew unwaveringly that it was for me. At the time, I was with a friend I'd become close to over a year of writing emails, and in our first exchanges, I knew that she was for me too. Now, when I put the necklace on, I think of her, and I think of what it feels like to know something clearly in my gut. Clearly, from the gut, you find that one thing, that one dress, jacket, hat, that makes you a big, bold personality, even if you're a little mouse. That's not shallow. That's about transformation. I'm Jackie Lydon. And that is Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jonathan Wilson, Lauren Ober, Armando Truel, and Matthew Schwartz, along with reporter Jackie Lydon. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connections managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Julie Alderman. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, "Every Little Bit Hurts," is from the album "It Was Easy" by Title Tracks, and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. If you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click this week on Metro Connection or subscribe to our podcast. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can tune in next week for a show we're calling "The Descendants." So much for the notion of DC being a transient city. We'll speak with Washingtonians whose family trees have roots that run deep, from early Native American settlers to the men who helped give birth to a brand new democracy. He and George Washington had a sort of lunch bunch, so he did keep good company. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.